Hello and welcome back. This is session 10 of the World Sepsis Congress 2021, titled The Role of AI, Big Data, and Digitalization in Combating Sepsis and COVID-19. Over the next 90 minutes, we will hear from six experts from all over the world on these topics, and the session is moderated by Nathan Nielsen from the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. Before we get into it, Beckman Coulter, our exclusive sponsor for this session, asked us to read the following message to you. Beckman Coulter is proud to be a sponsor of this year's World Sepsis Congress, an extremely valuable educational event for the global sepsis community. Our company is committed to improving sepsis outcomes and advancing healthcare for every person by applying the power of science, technology, and the passion and creativity of our team. Thanks again to Beckman Coulter for sponsoring this session. And now, over to Nathan to get us started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. Welcome to session 10 of the World Sepsis Congress. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the role of artificial intelligence and big data in the treatment of sepsis and of COVID-19. And we have an uh, impressive panel of speakers coming up. I'm sure you will all uh, learn a great deal. I, I certainly expect to. So... Without further ado, let me introduce our first speaker. This is Dr. Basil Mata, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, consultant in anesthesia and critical care, associate lecturer at the University of Cambridge, a very experienced neurointensivist, a prior president, the uh, president of the Society of International Neuroanesthesia and Critical Care, a speaker all over the world, and most interestingly and pertinent for our purposes today, uh, since October of 2020, the Senior Medical Director for Mosmo International. Uh, so without further ado, Dr. Mata, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for the very kind introduction, and thank you for inviting me to speak. Uh, as I said, uh, I, I would like to start by thanking the organizers of the World Sepsis Congress uh, 2021, my fellow speakers on this panel, and uh, I would just like to declare that I am the Senior Medical Director for Massimo, and I receive support from them. Now, I, uh, my job is, is split. I do uh, I work at Cambridge University Hospitals, a neurocritical care unit, a university that's founded in the 1200s, ranked among the top five universities in the world, and we cater for about 6 million catchment area. Uh, mostly we concentrate on the high-end specialties like transplant, neurosciences, and neurotrauma. And the reason I joined Massimo, which is a company founded in 1989 by Joe Chiani, a global company that develops and manufactures invasive, uh, innovative, non-invasive patient monitoring and medical devices, and has, uh, has uh, what we call the Massimo signal extraction, extraction technology, which is used by almost uh, all of the top hospitals in the world and uh, has monitored more than 200 million patients worldwide. Uh, the reason I joined the company is because it's so innovative and, and I'm so interested in, in remote monitoring and non-invasive monitoring and how we can improve patient care through better monitoring and reduce the cost of care. So the Cambridge University Hospital has 1,200 12, 12, 12 beds. Uh, we've got a catchment area of anything varies between four and six million. And we do an awful lot of work. We do an awful lot of day cases. We do an awful lot of uh, surgical operations. And uh, so you can imagine in a busy hospital like this, everyone's running around, everyone's looking at various bits and pieces, and sometimes uh, we get overwhelmed. And in uh, 2014, we decided that we would uh, go and, and 
into a, a complete electronic patient record system. This was uh, the, the, the choice of our chief executive then, uh, uh, Keith McNeil, and our chief medical information officer, Afzal Chaudhry. And not surprisingly, after months and months of preparation, months and months of uh, education, uh, the system went live in a big bank fashion on the 26th of October, uh, 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 2014. And uh, what happened was, uh, as predicted, it was a lot of difficulty, a lot of difficulty. Uh, and then eventually we got the usual uh, IT system failure, epic fail, all this money spent. And really, uh, there was a lot of uh, animosity and a lot of uh, Angriness, I suppose, really, and anxiety about the system that was implemented. But we persevered, and actually, it's a it's a testament to the staff, to the IT people, who actually uh, uh, made this system work. And in 2018, we found out that actually we have reached the highest standards in terms of uh, uh, MRM assessment, and we're stage six, and we're at stage seven now. So, if you persist and you do this, you do well. And what happened really, actually, is that. All that happened with that, with, with uh, putting Epic in, is to start with, is we, we turned what we call the paper system into a paperless system. That's all we eventually did. We, we, we started by, we spent money on, uh, on medical records. We saved uh, uh, a lot of money on chasing codings. We got improved our income, uh, improved accurate patient history. We automated a lot of the letter creations. We improved the pathways, but really we didn't use the system the way it was designed to be used, which is look at what you're doing, improve patient outcome and, and get better results. And so we started looking after we went through all this hurdle, uh, we started looking at how we can use the system to better improve patient outcome and reduce patient harm. And, you know, we're always looking for new ways to treat patients, always looking for new innovative technique. We sometimes forget that doing the basic things right and preventing harm from happening is what saves patients and what has the best sort of, uh, uh, if you like, the best impact on outcome. And this is an example of a, of a meta-analysis that was published in 2019 showing this, showing that actually we, we do so many things wrong. We, we subject patients to so much harm. If we just fix that, the outcome would be immensely improved. And this is the example here. In 7,000 medical records, one in every 20 patients are exposed to preventable medical errors. You know, 12% of those are severe or lead to death. And if you look at the reasons medical errors happen, drug errors are 25%. And it tends to happen in areas of high specialty where we think we're really, really good, but actually there's so much going on. Sometimes we miss simple things, intensive care, obstetrics, high-risk surgery. 12% of those leading to serious harm or death. So what we do is very important. So we wanted to see if we can use our electronic patient record system to better care the, the uh, uh, patients, and in particular, the sepsis channels. And you've heard about sepsis all week. You're going to continue to hear about it. Sepsis is a life-threatening condition. Uh, it kills uh, more patients uh, than prostate and breast cancer combined. Uh, it, has, it has a national target where you're supposed to really uh, start treatment within one hour of diagnosis, and that for every hour you delay the administration of antibiotics leads to an increase in 7 to 8% in mortality. And our challenge as an organization was identifying these patients quickly. We were only getting antibiotics in these patients in about a quarter of them. Uh, and what we wanted to do is improve staff awareness, early identification of patients with sepsis, and start the treatment. Uh, quickly. And that was going to be done through strong clinical engagement, enhancing our digital uh, decision, decision support systems with the EPR.
So what did we do? Well, we utilized the unique relationship the clinicians have with a trust in-house hospital digital team who've been around for uh, several months before the EPR went live, developing the capabilities of the electronic patient record system so that digital technology can, can save lives in ED. And we wanted to scale it out. And once we got one thing right, scale it out to other areas and other patient groups. So we started with ED and what we wanted to do was uh, uh, develop an electronic sepsis alert and workflow within the EPR for ED. And this is an example of how we did it. Patient presents in the ED, the nurse takes observations and vital signs and records them in the EPR system, and which generates an automatic alert in that system. And the nurse quickly clicks on that alert and is pretty much prompted to do the right actions, such as ordering blood tests, culture, blood cultures and, 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 and administer option. When the doctor opens the patient chart on the EPR, again, the doctor displays and gets an alert displayed to them and the doctor sees what action the nurse has taken so far. And then the doctor can decide what do we do next? What does the patient need from a small list of antibiotics that have been configured, uh, procedures, who to call, how to escalate? And it really was that simple. So you get this is what the nurse alert looks like. Inform the nurse in charge, please request this really prompting the stuff and the doctor alert was saying consider calling the rapid response team for example and uh, help with the muse scoring so what did that do well since the introduction of the sepsis alert within our uh, epic system really there was a 70 percent increase in patients receiving antibiotics for sepsis within one hour of ed arrival 50 percent increase in the patients receiving antibiotics within 60 minutes of the sepsis alert being triggered as an inpatient we saved at least and an estimate of 64 lives in 2018-2019 and a 42% reduction in trust sepsis mortality compared to the 2015 data. And remember, we're not introducing any new treatments. We're not done anything differently. What we did was just enforce what we already know and make it with the help of technology being delivered a bit quicker. And this is a, a, a patient called Deb Skeppy who, who uh, was with us in July 2018. She said, I was diagnosed with sepsis within 15 minutes of arriving at Adam Brooks Hospital A&E. The doctors and nurses gave me for me, caring for me, started my treatment within an hour. Absolute lifesavers. And this is the sort of example we got. So once we got that uh, sorted out, we started expanding. We got the pediatric sepsis alert and workflow. Again, we start sharing the learning, sharing the success. And because we became, funny enough, we became a digital ex uh, uh, global digital exemplar uh, as, as a hospital that implemented EPR. We started transferring knowledge. We started going to uh, non-system specific uh, uh, programs. We supported digital transformation in other healthcare organizations, and we expanded it to our Shellville group, which contains six or seven other major teaching hospitals. And really, so this is the success story. You know, we replaced all this failure with the implementation of Epic with success stories in the newspapers. We're full of them, you know, uh, how, how Adam Brooks has made this a success, reducing sepsis risk, reducing mortality by 42%, uh, increasing uh, sepsis screening by 100%. So it was a self-feed uh, sort of a, a program. Once we got the success, the staff got more enthusiastic about it, started using the system to its best advantage and develop more and more Better, better patient pathways. And so just to finish off, uh, as we know, we're limited in time. You know, people always talk about medicine being an art. I have a feel for this. I have a feel for that. And we may, that may be true. But, you know, a fighter pilot in an F-16 
can't process all that information coming at them all the time. They need the help of computers. And I suspect in medicine, we need to start having the help of machines and, and, and AI in particular. And this is an example of effective machine learning based uh, severe sepsis prediction algorithm in, on patient survival and hospital length of stay. It was a con randomized controlled trial in two ICUs in, in UCSF. Uh, and what they did here is they looked at patients, 67 in the control limb, uh, 75 in the, in the machine learning group, and they compared length of stay, which was reduced from 12.8 days to 10.3 days. In-hospital mortality was significantly reduced by 12.8%. And, the, uh, you know, this is quite a significant reduction right, by using uh, machine learning. So as a final thought, and I know we're running out of time, uh, I'd like to say that, you know, there's a lot to be learned from technology. There's a lot to be helped with technology. And we shouldn't dismiss a monitoring modality or a system because of the information it doesn't give you. So, you know, sometimes people say it's too complicated, it's too difficult, it's not clear cut. That's true, but there is a lot of information that these systems give us that we should embrace. And we shouldn't stop ourselves being limited by what it doesn't give us, but really concentrate on the things that it does give us. We have to remember, we always talk about a magic bullet, but really in healthcare and being in intensive care for 25 years, I know there is no such thing as a magic bullet, but there are lots of little silver pellets that you can use together, and together those can improve patient outcome. Now, thank you for your attention. I will stop now. So, oh, Dr. Mata, thank you for a, a great kickoff to our to our session and certainly a very optimistic tone. Uh, I do have a question from uh, one of our participants and they ask, uh, what, how do you uh, apply, I suppose, the, the possibility of EMR in the setting where there are delays between ambulance arrival, handover from the ambulance services to the medical staff and then getting someone into the uh, electronic record? That seems to be, uh, a frequent location where there is a hang-up uh, in yep. terms of you're really making the, the system efficiency. Very much so. And the reason for this is not new. The reason for this is because we treat healthcare data in, in, in segments. So GP has a segment. The ambulance people have a segment. The emergency department has a segment. We're only beginning to link departments within the hospital. So we're beginning to link the emergency department with the operating theatres, with the critical care through one single patient record. And mm. what we're doing now is working with our partners. We're, we're working with our ambulance guys. So, for example, mm. the hospital teams, the FEM teams, now send us the data as they pick up the trauma by the side of the road. So it's mm. a continuation. So I can see the future is your, mm. your, your data collection starts the minute you begin to feel unwell or begin... Mm to be picked up by a pre-hospital team. And that's, in my view, linking all this data together, having a mm -hmm. system that's uh, almost device agnostic or, or team agnostic will, mm -hmm. will string it all together. And then you'll be able to see the whole pathway. So you'll be able to see a pre-hospital doctor that puts in, for example, unnecessary chest strain, how, what impact that has on discharge of a patient who has chronic pain now for, for months afterwards or, or something just as, just as similar. That's, that's very interesting. So a fully integrated system from home to hospital. Indeed. Oh, that's Indeed. a great proposition. And there's no reason why the patients can't have their own data. There is no reason why, you know, we have, yeah. we have my own data on my credit card in my pocket. Why can't I have my health data on a similar thing yeah. that is very protected and secure and I can only give access to certain members that I, that I would like to have access to it? People always, yeah. always confuse security with access. The security of data is not the same as access. You know, data can be as secure as you want it in terms of bank accounts, but you can choose mm -hmm. to give access to people to it 
who can look after you. So you can get, you, that's the way I would think we'd be going forward. A final quick question again from our audience. Um, how do you avoid transcription errors in systems like these? Well, you know, that's probably a lecture in its own right, but... Uh, a lecture in its own. It, it depends what you want to do, really. Some people, for example, have scribes that walk around with the clinicians because, you know, the clinicians are and, and the nursing staff are expensive, so you don't want a senior clinician using one finger to type on a keyboard to put information in when somebody can do it for them in three seconds and they do their, their best. Some people use scribes so they can do that very quickly. Some people uh, uh, do cut and paste. Some people uh, you know, enter the information that's necessary. We use what we call problem lists. So rather than having to write things repeatedly, we have a problem list. Say this patient developed this problem, that's a solution. So you look at the problem list and I quickly get all the stuff that I need out of the problem list without having to go through detailed uh, writing, You know, uh, cut and paste of, you know, mm. blood pressures or, or in information that I can get somewhere else. Uh, we have this tendency that we want to put it all in the one place, but actually it is mm. all in the one place. You just have to look for it in the, in the right way. So simplifying the system itself, kind of structuring it properly helps reduce the potential for error. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, I believe, despite I think there are other questions uh, so that I don't get myself behind and get into trouble like I usually do when I moderate. Um, I believe we'll have to move on to our next speaker, but Dr. Mata, thank you so much for a, a very engaging and optimistic kickoff to our, to our session. Thank you for inviting me once again. Thank you. Bye now. All right. Do we have our second speaker? Yes. Uh, my name is Mohamed Aldeep. I'm the Senior okay. Director for Hospital Automation Solutions from Massimo Corporation in the U.S., but I'm based out of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Yes, the, the person I had initially initially listed was not you, so I was a little perplexed. Yes, so... Um, once again, from, from the Massimo cohort. That's uh, correct. All about AI and predictive analytics. Please take it away. Thank you very much, Nathan. So, uh, hello, everyone. And uh, I would like to thank the organizing committee for inviting us in Massimo to present and to, for this great opportunity. Um, so, the subject today is about leveraging AI and predictive analytics to improve diagnosis of sepsis. And today I'm presenting on, on behalf of Bilal Mohsen, our Chief Operating Officer. Unfortunately, he couldn't make it due to some uh, emergencies. So in Massimo, um, we've been contributing to the, um, I would say the successful journey of improving patient outcome and reducing the cost of care. And with this, we have been innovating and bringing technology to the market over the last 30 years. And one of the most important things where we have built on what other companies and other innovators have been built, the SPO2 technology with the Massimo SIT technology. So this is where we have used the advanced processing techniques and technologies in order to improve accuracy during motion and low perfusion. So with this being said, and for Massimo being committed to our patient's safety and patient safety to the core. So we are today exploring new technologies in order to improve the detection of sepsis for patients. Now, how we do it today with the, with the new algorithms that we are introducing. So we are building on the continuous monitoring from one side and whatever chart or charted data that we have in EMRs as well as lab results, in order to put it in a machine learning environment where we can really build on 
to early detect the offset time for sepsis. Now, of course, during the pandemic, there, there have been also big demand on critical care areas as well as on critical care services. So definitely we, we believe that we are obliged in order to bring newer technologies to support clinicians on those floors in order to bring uh, uh, the, the detection of sepsis on a, on, a, uh, on, a, on a faster manner. So whenever we were partnering with clinicians and we are checking with them, so we're always asking ourselves, is the infection progressing towards sepsis? So we wanted always to have a kind of trend or a score, what's happening to my sepsis risk? So is it increasing or is it decreasing based on my treatment? So is my treatment working fine? And the last thing was for us also, which was like to complete the puzzle. Are there any measurements or missing data to make an informed decision for my patient? So if I'm giving the right therapy or not, so I need an indication or a feedback if I need to do further investigations to qualify or to specify whatever is happening to my, to my patient. And moving forward, so we started by pulling the requirements by saying, okay, we want to compare patient history and we want to compare it with the current state because it's not an isolated or an episodic kind of diagnosis. So we're looking at a complete trended data for our patients. And then we started looking at predicting the probability of sepsis by reaching, whether it's reaching a septic shock and if the recovery is going to happen based on the 10 data points that we have collected from the previous encounters. Thirdly, we wanted our system to cope with noise and how we can also make it happening and working and reliable, although if we don't have continuous data and we have some missing data from our chart or from our lab systems or vital signs. And lastly, we wanted to make sure that whoever the clinician is or the person is with whatever background, we wanted to make the decision on, or let's say the clinical decision support tool, non-biased from human decision processes. And the solution as a final outcome from our side was where we looked at the physiological model and then we incorporated it with a novel AI deep machine learning system, we made sure that with this combined hybrid system, we are taking the predictability of the system, explainability, scalability, and high accuracy. So with the Massimo hybrid sepsis AI system that we are looking at, we have started on collecting close or more than 24 biomarkers as well as physiomarkers, whether it's coming from bedside devices or it is coming from an EMR or it's coming from lab system or any other electronic medical system that is existing in the hospital. And then we pull it together to a unified user interface. And this is how we built it on what you can see it right now on your slide. This is what we have built it on our existing platform. So you will have a trended score showing, showing you on a continuous manner whatever is happening with the patient in terms of sepsis scoring. So from one side, it's giving you the level of acuity. So it's a score from zero to 100. And then it is driven with whether sepsis is happening or developing for the patient. There will be always a percentage which that is growing or reducing based on the patient condition. 
So this is our sepsis trigger or offset identification. On the other side, if you're looking at the right side of the screen, we're also highlighting whether it's a disease symptoms related condition that is causing the high score or the high risk for the patient. So whether it's sepsis or for example, pneumonia, or it's a parameter, whether it's an SpO2 that is really significant for that case or for that condition that is really causing the high risk scoring for, for our patient. Plus, the trended data will be always triggering for us if we are missing any lab result, for example, or a vital sign or any data set that is really required to improve the accuracy or the specificity for the, for the, for the platform. Now, when we are looking at the, at, or when we are zooming in, we can still also incorporate other data as well as other parameters that are coming from associated medical devices to that bedside, which is going to give us a holistic approach of accessing patients who are developing or suffering from sepsis. Now, lastly, when we are looking at an improved clinical decision support tool, of course, we don't want to make it as a, as a standard approach. So the tool is one part, but also we want to incorporate with the hospital workflows in order to make it beneficial or useful for, for, for the clinicians on the floor or, or on the ground. So what we have done, we have incorporated existing guidelines that hospitals are using. So whenever it comes for the decision support piece, it will tell you, for example, that there is a, a predictive uh, sepsis shock within X hours. And the reason is whether it's a temperature, vital sign or a lab result. So it will be part of the diagnosis support tool. But then when it comes for the guidance, this is where we are going for further investigation or looking at what kind of treatment or antibiotics we are giving to our patients. So this is where we start the customization based on hospital standards or protocols that are available, for example, as per a hospital, hospital group, or even a national level of protocols. Now, one of the most important things that we have also incorporated while we, are, we were building the system is looking at the richness of the data points that we are collecting. So the initial trials, when we started comparing the data that we are generating from our system, so we're looking at a close to 200,000 patient data points, which is almost like six to seven million uh, parameters that we are looking at one uh, at one shot to analyze and, of course, do, uh, put it, putting it in our research data warehousing. And then we have expanded to doubling those numbers. And I think today we are looking, for example, for a couple more hundreds of thousands of patients where we are normalizing and keep learning the machine or the, the, the algorithm to always improve the predictability as well as specificity and, and accuracy for the data. And um, with this, I reach to uh, closure for my for my presentation. So thank you very much. I think we have some time for uh, Q and A. Excellent, Mohammed. Thank you so much for a very uh, thought provoking and uh, innovative uh, product and uh, discussion. Uh, I do have some questions from the audience. Uh, so if you're ready to field them, yes, please. Uh, the the first question was. Uh, what kind of early sepsis detection scoring system are you using? Are you using a, 
a system that's already out there in the kind of the medical literature, or is this a, a Massimo-specific scoring system? So this is actually a Massimo-specific uh, sepsis detector. So we built it based on uh, our own technology when it comes for the uh, machine deep learning, but also we were taking consideration a number of inputs that we needed uh, in order to feed the most accurate data um, uh, for our customers. So for example, we were looking at demographic, de demographics, admission and discharge data. Then we are looking at the vital signs. We are looking also at EHR charts like the uh, FIO2, or we are looking at the uh, GCS scale or GCS uh, scale. And we're looking also at SOFA scoring to help in making, let's say the machine or the algorithm more reliable at the early stages. But at the end, the final product is a Massimo uh, algorithm. Okay. And is this product then connected to electronic medical records or is it kind of a still a standalone product right now? Perfect. So well, the final product when it's released, um, uh, it will have two flavors. So we will have a completely automated system where it's gathering the information from EMRs or EHR. So you will have automatic feed for lab data also from the uh, pharmacy system. Mm. But also the system will be also able to work as a standalone. So if you don't have the most reliable EHR in the hospital or you don't have it at all, you will be still able to enter the values manually that are really uh, essential for the score to be generated. Hmm. And at what point in the medical system does this system um, get applied? There's a question from the from our participants. Uh, is this implemented in the triage portion of the emergency department, or does it need to be um, a little more uh, advanced or a little bit richer in terms of the, the data points? Um, this is a perfect question. So this is also one of the discussions that we've been having internally within Massimo. So we have done our, our trials in critical care areas where you have, let's say, the most sophisticated devices and equipment and systems, and even the skilled uh, staff, they are always in the critical care areas. But also today, we have the system running in lower acuities, such as EDs, where we, where, where we have been able to support clinicians to detect sepsis, and also in general floor areas. So even lower acuity, the system will be applicable there because we can also provide it with our own appliances or it can be also a vendor agnostic server kind of setup. Hmm. Okay. And Mohammed, I think I've got three or four different questions on kind of on similar veins here. Um, to be honest, where do you have data? <laughs> but about three or four different questions saying, you know, are, are there publications? What's the standard of care? Uh, do you have data on this? Uh, tell us what are, where, so where we are right now. We are right now. Yeah. So we're still in the pre launch phase. So we will have our published data. And of course we will be uh, sharing our findings with, let's say, um, uh, bodies such as the FDA, for example, to validate the findings on the uh, of the system. So definitely there will be more publications that we are already now working on uh, with a couple of hospitals and healthcare systems. So definitely um, uh, there will be a buzz around the publications that we are, we are, we are going to, uh, to feed it to the uh, 
to the community. Yeah, looking looking forward to that. Thank you. Um, let's see, any other question here? Um, Around eight percent of the ED, and this is uh, just this can be implemented then in many different locations in the hospital, the emergency department, ICU floor. I, I suppose that the general idea is that it could be applied anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So this is as I, I mentioned mentioned previously. So it's not uh, designed or intended to be used only in critical care areas. So the system will be. Uh, applicable to be installed in lower acuities. Excellent. Well, I, I think I can speak for, for persons interested in sepsis everywhere that we are uh, very anxious to see how this all turns out. It's, it seems a very appealing tool to bring machine learning and, and high level analytics into our kind of gut feeling about septic patients. So um, I'll say that we are interested in those publications that you speak of. Thank you very much. No, definitely there will be an announcement um, from Massimo whenever those uh, publications are released. And uh, definitely we are more than happy to connect also with clinicians all over the world to, even if they're interested also in trial or for example, um, understanding more how the system works, um, we can really, uh, we are also interested in sharing some insights. Fantastic, uh, much appreciated. And thank you so much for uh, speaking to us today. Thank you very much, Nathan, and thank you, everyone, and um, good luck. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. All right. Wow. Those are two very interesting initial sessions. Hope our, our audience across the world is enjoying them as much as I am. Uh, are moving right along, our next speaker will, will speak to us about how artificial intelligence can improve the treatment of sepsis. And here we have... Oh, let me see if I can get this any, anywhere vaguely close to correct. Uh, Dr. Matthew Komorowski. Oh, please tell me I'm getting that close to correct. Uh, oh, excellent. Uh, Matthew is a clinical senior lecturer in the Faculty of Medicine at Imperial College London, uh, consultant in intensive care and anesthetics. And uh, now I find this totally cool, a prior research fellow of the European Space, Space Agency. So it's definitely done a whole lot of interesting things uh, and is presently working on uh, reinforcement of learning techniques with uh, artificial intelligence and big data for decision support systems. So this should be very, very interesting. And without further ado, Dr. Komorowski, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you so much. So uh, my talk is actually quite related to the previous two talks but we're gonna take a, sort of a wider angle at general applications of, of AI in sepsis. And um, I, wanna, I wanna start with the hype really, uh, because there's a lot of that. So imagine a world where AI could help us with pretty much any aspect of sepsis management, starting with sepsis uh, prediction, sepsis detection, you know, even potentially be, even before sepsis occurs prognostication, how well a patient is going to do. Um, can AI help us with patient phenotyping, so identifying homogeneous subgroups of patients? Can AI help us with controlling the source of infection, so uh, predict bacteremia, predict antibiotic resistance? Uh, can AI help us with hemodynamic support, predict hypotension, predict which patients uh, need 
vasopressors, for example, can AI uh, suggest the optimal dose of intravenous fluids, optimal dose of vasopressors, and a, a whole lot of different applications around organ support, prediction of AKI, optimization of sedation and ventilation strategy, and, and so on. I could go on and on. So um, that's exciting. And the good news is that potentially all of this could already be achieved today with technology that we have at hand. And I'm going to skim over um, the literature, so focusing on applications that I think are really exciting. We heard um, quite a bit about sepsis prediction, and this is certainly where a lot of the efforts have been uh, invested. This is a typical paper in that, in that space where you see uh, researchers building a model using supervised learning, basically mapping the input data, so patient data, and labels, which is patient has sepsis or does not have sepsis. And once you've learned this relationship, this mathematical relationship, you can use this prospectively to, um, to predict whether a future patient is going to have sepsis. So you see here on that, on that slide, there's a, there's a uh, purple curve at the, at the top. And this is the AISE, so the score that these uh, authors have developed. And the score goes up something like 12 hours before the patient is actually uh, labeled as having sepsis. Even more exciting, um, can we predict the profile of antibiotic resistance of a bacteria without going through the tedious steps of sending blood cultures to a lab and then trying to grow the bug in petri dishes, submitting the antibiotic to different concentrations of different antibiotics and, and so on. So usually this takes, what, two, three, four days sometimes? Well, potentially you could cut this down to just a few hours if uh, you have this technology, which is basically relies on amplifying the genome of, of a bacteria and directly from that genome, predicting whether it's going to be sensitive or, or resistant to different classes of antibiotics. And you see the accuracy here at the top is uh, consistently over 80% in that paper. Potentially, in my opinion, a game changer in, in sepsis. Um, machine learning can also be used to predict outcomes. This is a great paper because um, the authors have used structured, but also unstructured data, so free notes, to predict a whole range of outcomes, including mortality, readmission, uh, length, prolonged lengths of stay, and, uh, and diagnosis, so uh, ICD codes. Okay. Using unsupervised learning, you can basically cluster patients, group them into homogeneous subgroups. Um, in that particular paper, the authors have used uh, as input data transcriptomics data, so messenger RNA from leukocytes of patients with community-acquired pneumonia. And they simply ask the algorithm, give us the two most different groups. Um, and they call these groups sepsis response signatures one and two. We don't know what they correspond to, right? This is exploratory. You see that they have different survival profiles here on the left. You see that they are well separated. Um, and in a follow-up work, they showed that one of these groups, so the sepsis response signature group number two, um, responded badly when they were given steroids. So the mortality was significantly higher. So potentially this approach could help us inform, for example, which patients need steroids in sepsis. You know, it's adding, it's adding a, little, a, a little piece to the puzzle. Um, I have to talk about this great paper, Chris Seymour in, uh, in Pittsburgh, um, two years ago, they described four phenotypes of, of sepsis. A very exciting application, I think, of 
these kind of approaches is to inform future clinical trials by basically uh, including only patients that satisfy a specific kind of phenotype, meaning that they would be more likely to benefit from a given intervention. And, you know, maybe if we start doing this, we will start seeing positive trials in intensive care again. So very exciting. There's a lot of work in this, in this area being, being done at the moment. Another very exciting application, field of application, is reinforcement learning. Um, here you analyze the interaction between an agent and an environment. Here the agent is the doctor, acts on, um, on a patient. The patient is going to react by switching state, by transitioning to a new health state. And if that new state has better properties, you know, a lower degree of organ failure, for example, then a reward is released to the agent. And the action that led to that transition is reinforced. That's why it's called reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning is super exciting. Uh, it is basically uh, very useful when you try to optimize sequential decisions. So it's not so much about a drug A versus drug B, uh, you know, crossroads. It's more like, what do I do now? And then what do I do now? And then what do I do now? And so on. Um, here's an example of, of a paper you can uh, build with reinforcement learning. In this one, the authors suggest to optimize mechanical ventilation using reinforcement learning. And this, this specific algorithm suggests a tidal volume, a level of PEEP, and an FiO2 in order to maximize some kind of clinical outcomes. My particular research area is in uh, fluids and vasopressors in sepsis. And um, what we did, we designed an, an AI based on reinforcement learning that would suggest doses um, for a given patient at a given time that would be associated with, with higher survival, high, higher 90-day survival. All right, so lots of potential applications. This is, this is just a quick snapshot of the literature, but there's so much more. Um, okay, what about the reality? How many of those tools do you, do you use in your clinical practice? I can tell you for my hospital, zero, absolutely zero. Uh, so um, the reality is much more bleak. And um, I'm going to focus on just on sepsis prediction. If you do a quick PubMed search or Google Scholar search on sepsis prediction, you'll get tens of thousands of hits, literally. Um, so here, see 89,000 hits on, on PubMed. How many of those are used in clinical practice? Was actually, there's, a, there's a systematic review published last year by the, the team of uh, Paul Elbers in, in Amsterdam. And um, they've eventually include 28 papers in, in this review. They found only three RCTs, sorry, only three prospective trial, trials and only one RCT. Uh, Dr. Aldib actually sh showed us this, this paper. One RCT, N equal 142. So going from nearly 90,000 hits on PubMed to one RCT with 140 patients. It's a bit, um, uh, it's a, it's a bit concerning. Things make, make a lot of sense when you start comparing the process of developing drugs by pharmaceutical companies to the process of developing AI-based clinical tools, right? This is the, the way to look at it. This is not a failure of AI. It's just, it's just that things are difficult. So in, the, in pharmaceutical companies, they start with tens of thousands of drug candidates, and then they screen those drugs. They do some clinical trials with the most promising ones, and then eventually a few drugs are approved for clinical use. Well, it will be, it's going to be exactly the same thing for AI-based tools. So at, at the moment, we're doing a lot of work in algorithm discovery. Um, 
and uh, so some teams do preclinical testing, clinical trials, and so on. But eventually, we'll get more and more uh, algorithms and tools that will get approved uh, for for clinical use. And indeed, the FDA, I think, in the US has approved now over over well over a hundred tools. So that's that's my main message, basically, that machine learning is exciting. It's we've made great progress, but it's only a tiny piece of the puzzle if we want to impact patient at scale. And there's a lot of other aspects that we need to consider very carefully. Clinical relevance, uh, you know, aspect around aspects around the workflow. How does it fit where, where, with what the doctors do? Uh, how do you make sure that it's trusted and accepted and used? Um, there's a lot of technical issues still, you know, around data uh, interoperability. Uh, also, ex- aspects of generalizability. Is it going to work when you mo- when you move your model to another country, another health system? Is your machine learning model explainable? And there's a whole branch, a whole branch of aspects around medical device development. You know, IP, safety assurance, uh, health economics, and, and so on. So it is very complex. So that's that's why um, that's why it's it's taking time. But I'm I'm confident that um, you know eventually we'll get there, and and all of these tools will eventually be used at scale, validated and and accepted, and you know for 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 patient benefit. That's what we care about. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. A, a great talk. And I don't think it was as pessimistic as you thought it was. I think uh, there is optimism uh, down, down the road. Um, and a really interesting question from one of our audience. Uh, what, what type of professionals are needed to supervise these systems? Because clearly this is not your, your typical kind of bedside clinician. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, 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 that's a great question. Um, I think a realistic way to look at it is that each hospital will have someone with a particular interest in that, and they will sort of be the local champion. Mm-hmm. There is a strong argument, I would I would say, that we need a new medical specialty. You know, a new uh, so, so have some doctors that would be called um, AI medical AI uh, professionals. There's actually some literature on this. You know, editorial viewpoints from uh, from uh, from um, um, lead figures in in the field that that. Um, I think I think is a very strong argument, um, but you know eventually those tools, they will have to be used by most people. Uh, you know I'm saying nearly nearly everybody. So uh, they will have to be user friendly. They will have to be trusted by by the widest uh, range of clinicians. Excellent, great point. All right. Uh, well, a last. Despite I have two other questions, I'd love to be able to ask you. I have to move on to our next speaker. So thank you, um, thank you so much. Um, a great. Certainly thought-provoking talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Moving rapidly onward so that I don't far too, fall too far behind. Uh, moving on to uh, Dr. Heather Duncan. Uh, Dr. Duncan's a pediatric intensivist in Birmingham. Uh, her expertise is in early detection deterioration in children and um, has a great deal of expertise on the wireless monitoring in children and the development of artificial intelligence smart alarms uh, to help warn for an impending catastrophe in, in, our, in our youngest patients. So uh, without further ado, uh, Dr. Duncan, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be with you here today. And um, I'm speaking to you from Birmingham in the UK. And over the next 10 minutes, I'm going to uh, go through wireless monitoring with you and how it's going to contribute to the future of sepsis. 
So we'll be talking about some devices today, but I want to confirm that I have no conflict of interest. So as we go through, um, there are three main concepts that I'm going to be covering, and so I'm going to use these three symbols. So the wireless monitoring, which enables artificial intelligence, which is going to help, both of which are going to help us to manage uh, sepsis in the future. So my journey started in South Africa, where early detection for us relied on us walking through the waiting room and looking for life-threatening illness, and then identifying those patients and bringing them forward. And from there, during critical care training, I developed an expert-derived PEW system. So that's a score, education, standards, and training, and it works well. But only really where we have adequate nursing resources to do frequent and accurate observations. So what do we really need? Um, for the world's sickest children, we need a smart surveillance system that allows sick children to be identified in all environments. And for this, we need wireless monitoring that feeds into a population dashboard so we can prioritize which patients need attention and then we can manage those patients in good time. Wireless monitoring with cheap sensors and simple tablets, phones or PCs and a smart backend software can allow us to monitor many more patients and prioritize the sickest in all populations. So when we look at wireless sensors, um, you can see here a sample of um, PPGs or pulse oximeters and, um, and blood pressure and heart rate monitors. Wireless sensors are developing. The ECG and blood pressure uh, sensors are better developed and more accurate. And we're still waiting for a very accurate respiratory rate um, measurement, but the trends are adequate. And uh, pulse oximeters do need a lot more work. On the left-hand side, you can see the wavelet. Um, that is a reflectance sensor, and it is the one that is most favored by patients because it's not attached to the fingers. Um, they don't actually like to have uh, uh, sensors on their fingers, um, and so they tend to remove them really often, which leads to a, a, quite a loss of data. Um, however, the reflectance saturation probe has not yet had validation in all age groups. And so none of these, none of the PPG sensors are yet ideal. So when it comes to usability and maturity of these sensors, what we know from patients, um, from our own work of about 900 patients, is that patients have a strong preference for wireless systems. It allows good patient contact, mobility, and better sleep. We now have good frameworks for assessment of these systems. However, even looking with those, those frameworks, none of the systems are really mature from either a patient or a clinician perspective. And indeed, implementation of these systems as socio-technical uh, complex systems is very important in order to get it right. So routinely, we would have wired sensors for an ECG, which would give us respiratory rate and heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, and a PPG for pulse oximetry. And um, what we're really moving towards in the future um, is to have small, soft sensors that are stuck to the patient um, so that they are unobtrusive and, um, uh, and that they have very clever uh, power or battery technology. Uh, so, and, and these, these uh, sensors are coming through. They've just been um, described um, in particular by Chung in Science in, 19, in 2019. 
So um, what do we need to choose as clinicians? Well, um, you don't yet need to have these mature systems in place in order to be able to progress with what we need to know. We need to know about data frequency, and we can use um, electronic uh, data systems. For example, as Basil was saying, with the EPIC system, you can use EPRs um, in order to determine, do we need to measure the observations and the smart alarms, one, two, five, 10, 15, 30, 60 minutes? In ICU, we've worked out that it needs to be at least every 15 minutes with a smart alarm. Um, and since most of them are wired, it's okay. You can do it every minute. It's fine. But if we were um, needing to, uh, if so we would currently send and store data every minute, then that actually takes up quite a lot of battery power and takes up storage as well. And so we need to know that sending and storing the data with that frequency actually adds value. This is, the, this is also what um, Mohammed was referring to, is that um, wireless data is noisy, periodic, and frequently missing. And so although we're getting more continuous data, this is our second epoch of data where we had just increased from, uh, we increased from 17% data coming through to 37, and then eventually with the life touch, we actually managed to get 97% um, of the data coming through. We use the known and Ristox 2, and there we managed to get up to 50% of the data. So really when it comes to AI, um, and artificial intelligence, we really need to take this into consideration um, that however good the systems are and however uh, good our forensic details are in terms of trying to manage down data loss, this is the nature of the data that we need to deal with. So Pawab uh, published this framework of wireless monitoring where we come through from the sensors to a mobile-based unit, back-end server for signal processing and then visualization. And at all of these points, we could be wired or wireless, um, and, uh, um, and data can be lost at all of these points. So what do we want as clinicians? Well, we do want continuous surveillance. We don't know how continuous that is, and we want early warning. But wireless monitoring, it is challenging, but worthwhile. And, um, and we need to work out what we need to do um, to use it optimally in limited resources in any environment. So I'm just quickly going to go through a bit of artificial intelligence, but you've had some good information on that already. AI is basically the umbrella term for machine learning, which is what we use with algorithms, and then the deep learning, which we tend to do with the databases. Um, and the majority of work in sepsis has been done with machine learning. So what I prefer to look at AI is actual intelligence. So we get the data from the sensors that sends us information to our monitors. And then that gives us knowledge about the direction of travel of the patient. Are they improving or deteriorating? And that allows us um, to, to take action, actionable intelligence. And as far as AI is concerned, this was wired, but it is for me one of the, one of the most interesting studies. It's already quite old, 2013. And this is sepsis um, using HERO in NICU. And you can see on the left-hand side the difference between the uh, patients with septicemia and those without using heart rate, um, heart rate characteristics. And on the right-hand side, you can see that we actually get these spikes of uh, early warning. And what we as clinicians need to decide is how 
how uh, sensitive do we want the early warning and how infrequent or frequent do we want the false alarms? So we really do need to determine where we set those thresholds. So when we come to the meta-analysis of the sepsis alert systems, over 130 models, most of them have at least one outcome or process measure which is improved and the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve varies quite substantially. What we do know is continuous and wireless data is better for these, for these systems because it gives us more frequent data. And we have already started to see in these studies how the clinicians are choosing early detection of sepsis um, and managing to reduce it without um, having too many false positives. So what do we need to choose? As clinicians, we need to choose the frequency of the, of the data that we're wanting to collect from the wireless sensors. We also can choose and determine which sensors we pull through from market. So do we want cheap, recyclable, rechargeable, or smart power management uh, and non-battery? Um, do we want uh, UV cleaning, UV uh, solar charging? Which parameters do we want? and then which sepsis prediction tools are going to be appropriate for the populations that we want. So in summary, wireless systems and AI sepsis prediction tools are our future. The wireless the, the sensors and systems are coming along. Um, we can have improved detection and improved outcomes, although not consistently. And we now have currently, we've got good frameworks for the assessments of those systems. However, um, as Matthew was saying, the clinical studies are mainly at the feasibility stage and the validation. What we really need is good clinical trials um, with implementation studies so that we can actually be sure that we um, develop the systems um, so that we can detect sepsis um, uh, with the appropriate technology um, and make sure that it works for the environment for which it's intended. Thank you. Thank you for that great talk, uh, Dr. Duncan. That was uh, most comprehensive. Uh, <laughs> give a great overview of some of the, the benefits and potential challenges of these technologies. Um, a question, I, I hope I'm speaking this correctly from, from our audience, um, is what's the impact of these wireless uh, vital sign monitors on early warning scores? Can they either bolster our current use of early warning scores or perhaps do our current early warning scores need to be adapted in order to account for early, kind of essentially even earlier data? Yes, I think that the early warning scores currently in most situations are only measured one to four hourly in routine practice. Mm. And so what wireless monitoring can do is it can give us an early warning um, alert every minute. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's really important that actually our current early warning systems are not enough. Just automation of mm. our current early warning systems provides a lot of false alarms. Mm. And so we will get alarm fatigue. And mm. so what we do need to do is to employ um, the machine learning 
um, and the smart alarms in order to have uh, better early warnings so that we can trade up on the sensitivity and the, the specificity at the same time. So um, we need more than just automated news or pews or news. Mm -hmm. so the noise filtering then becomes really, really important. Absolutely, yes. Another question from our, from our participants here is, uh, what's the potential of applying these technologies to pre-healthcare encounter? Oh, great, yes. Really making it early warning signals. Yes, so um, looking at the wireless uh, um, technology, it is divided into um, two sort of uh, sectors, really. One is the pre-hospital and, um, and one is in-hospital. But uh, really also, as Basil said, what we need to do is we need to be quite sensor agnostic, really, um, and we need to be able to collect this data from the pre-hospital or the moment the patient walks into the clinic or into the GP surgery, Mm -hmm. uh, we need to start monitoring and collect those trends through the ambulance journey into hospital, into theater, ICU, mm -hmm. through hospital and back home again. That's really what we need to do. We need to, once we've learned that patient, mm -hmm. then we really need to learn that. We need to mm -hmm. use that information mm -hmm. about uh, when they're getting worse and when they're getting better. So we need, it, we need to adapt it in all environments. I, I love that phrase, learning the patient. Not just learning the system, not just learning the data, but actually learning the patient and how they fit in. Oh, I love that idea. Oh, well, thank you so much. I have so many other questions I'd love to ask, but uh, time being what it is, we have to move on. But uh, Dr. Thank Dr. thank you for a, a lovely presentation. Much appreciated. Thank you. All right, moving right along. Wow, what a, what a great session so far. I, I hope uh, the audience, uh, despite the fact that I haven't been able to ask all of your questions, is enjoying this nearly as much as I am. Um, truly some very thought-provoking and, and insightful talks so far, and uh, definitely a very interesting perspective looking into the future. So we're down to our, our last two speakers for the session, uh, much to my sadness. Uh, moving on, uh, we have Dr. Asad Latif, uh, who is chair of the Department of Anesthesiology at the Aga Khan University in, in Karachi, Pakistan. Um, a, a very accomplished, um, educator, researcher, physician. Um, his research interests lie in global surgical care, preventing hospital-acquired uh, infections, and particularly health system strengthening. Um, and presently, he's been working with the Gates Foundation, leading a project uh, to improve capacity building to care for critically ill patients with COVID-19, uh, with infrastructure, assessment training, teleconsultation. So clearly very timely, very important work being done and I certainly look forward to his talk. I hope you all enjoy as well. So um, without further preamble, Dr. Latif, the floor is yours. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, my name is Asad Latif, and uh, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I'm assuming that the camera isn't working, so I'm just gonna speak. Uh, so uh, I'm gonna be talking about uh, treating COVID-19 using telemedicine in a low resource country. Um, as you mentioned, I do, have one disclosure, which uh, we were working on a project. Uh, we're in partnership with Gates. Um, so uh, I actually recently moved uh, to Pakistan about a year and a half ago, which happened to be about six months before uh, COVID started from the US as a Johns Hopkins before this. And uh, uh, it turns out it was a timely uh, move. Uh, care was very different over there. Uh, and everybody knows about the US status, but COVID has been a problem for everybody. Pa Pakistan is no different. Uh, so far, 
750,000 plus people have been affected COVID. Unlike the West, not as high a death rate and an interesting mix of what the um, critical care component of this is. Um, as we all know, um, early on, a lot of information came out about COVID. Uh, and this was around what is natural history is about how most people have asymptomatic disease, a percentage, about 15% will get a severe disease requiring care. And of those, about 5% will get critically ill requiring ICU services such as mechanical ventilation. And these were the numbers that we kind of were expecting and started preparing for and was what kind of fostered us to move in this direction. Um, so a lot of changes happen in healthcare around the world and Pakistan was no different. What we saw around here was a huge changes in health seeking behavior overall, huge drops in uh, um, volumes at hospitals came all the way down to like 20% of uh, uh, pre-COVID volumes, changes in health seeking behavior amongst uh, um, the population, um, higher volumes of urgent emergent issues where COVID-19 became the major volume for a long period of time as the health system shut down. Um, significant, the interesting change, and but these were all expected given what we see on a day-to-day -day basis and the fear that people had. The interesting changes, even in low-income countries, was around uh, what the pub, what the public sector did, and what the governments did. There is a significant increased investment in healthcare, and this, if you've uh, worked in LMIC, you know, can be the biggest challenge in changing. So this was almost paradigm shifting, in the sense that hospitals, hospital-based care. And strengthening that became a big focus for all governments, given the lessons that people learned early on from Europe and from China. And they bought a bunch of ventilators, they bought a bunch of monitors and stuff. Things that have been talked about for decades suddenly happened almost overnight. And critical care was a specific beneficiary. So in the province of Sindh, which caters to about 80 million people live here, um, there was in public sector about 30 odd ventilators, uh, which uh, as any intensivist knows is a small, small, small number. That increased tenfold overnight um, within a couple of weeks uh, to about 400 plus, still not a huge number, but you can imagine that now suddenly a health sector that never saw a ventilated patient before has 10 times as much capacity. Um, so we came up with an idea that how do we strengthen this capacity immediately? So we decided uh, at the Aachen University to uh, get ourselves involved in a public-private partnership. And we work with the federal government, uh, the provincial health ministries to kind of take this off. And we said, all right, how can we take care of all these, this influx of critical care patients is increase the capacity that you have now and actually see if we can benefit the patient. So we developed, a, uh, with Gates uh, backing us, we developed a critical care capacity building program for COVID, which ended up being kind of a full, uh, we didn't look at just service provision, but as a health system strengthening uh, project that will use COVID as its um practice target or its initial target, but hopefully improve the health system overall. Um, and for this, we uh, did a, a, a three-part sort of uh, uh, approach where we did a comprehensive assessment of the critical care capacity across the country, um, mass training of people to actually um, learn about critical care and uh, develop a resource agnostic telemedicine consult service for actual care delivery to kind of brings up to speed and address the immediate need as well as the long-term need. Uh, so uh, I'm just gonna quickly go over the first two components and focus on the last one. The assessment of critical care capacity used a mixed methods approach, uh, was more questionnaire based, some was in person, some was over uh, 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 the phone. And 
using a list that the government gave us, we rapidly did a uh, help quantify the local needs and requirements. We used a four-pronged uh, kind of a um, the partners in health sort of model for S sort of model for health system evaluation, where we really looked at um, uh, space, staff, stuff, systems. So uh, what the infrastructure was like, and of course, uh, what the staffing was like, whether the right people were there, whether the right equipment was there beyond the just building, and whether the right systems were there to actually use it. Um, and over here, the, the usual suspects, as we'd expect, came up where negative pressure rooms were the biggest gap. Um, actually, central auction supply was another gap. And qualified intensivists, um, what constitute qualified can be uh, left uh, unsaid, but qualified intensivists were the other two biggest gaps. Surprisingly, most places actually got their ventilators by 97% or non-invasive uh, ventilation approaches to BiPAP. Um, this being said, this was naturally an overestimate because uh, with uh, in Pakistan, it was obvious uh, in a country of 230 million, there's about 30 people who've passed local certification as for critical care. Um, there's maybe another 50-odd internationally trained, so maybe a generously 100 intensivists trained intensivists for the entire country. Um, but most people who actually practice, practice critical care, people who have been working in the area of emergency medicine or anesthesia for the most part, or have experience in it. So um, luckily our survey showed that uh, the healthcare workforce was an obvious gap. So our second prong was around building this workforce in a three-pronged sort of manner. For immediate knowledge, we actually developed an online um, webinars, live webinars, and now LMS-based systems to help deliver uh, some basic content around, you know, what is a ventilator? How do you turn it on? Uh, what's an ABG? How to interpret it? Um, and some more advanced stuff. But of course, this was for the masses. As a tier two, we realized that for places which actually have working units for high dependency units or intensive care units where they use BiPAPs and, and uh, ventilators, we would actually... Uh, target physicians and nurses who work there and have them come and do live on-site simulation-based uh, training. Uh, and for this, we were again fortunate to get the support of uh, uh, Gates to help do this and develop master trainers in these public teaching hospitals who can help build the, the next cadre and actually deliver care in a reliable manner. Um, and then the final goal is kind of to develop a health critical care certificate program. Uh, it's you know, not quite what you would want for an intensivist. It takes two to three years to train one, but at least get them on board talking the right language and be kind of the local uh, experts. So with this, um, we had very success. Um, we did, uh, these are all the various educational interventions we did, some, some general webinars about COVID, some stuff around critical care, uh, directed critical care nurses and technicians, some for people working in ICUs with COVID patients, hands-on component, and of course, some uh, education online about uh, PPE utilization. And with this, we we're actually able to achieve a huge um, numbers. We hit over 20,000 uh, people uh, touched uh, with just the online stuff. This was the basic tier one sort of components that we had. Um, and then with the targeted stuff, with uh, the in-person components, we've been doing workshops since October, uh, two-day sort of in-person simulation-based uh, uh, workshop for physicians and a three-day one for nurses, um, where we've now hit about 250 odd people trained. And with these, we actually paired this with our third arm, which is the tele IC consultation service. And what we're actually working on is a low resource, 
teleservice for critically ill patients um, and dedicated remote peer-to-peer console. So how we framed it was this isn't patient-facing, but this is um, physician-facing. Uh, and the goal is to develop these collaborative networks for healthcare workers and healthcare facilities in those settings so that they kind of uh, can talk to each other and bounce ideas. We actually have um, three models in which we actually work with this. The first is um, independent consultations. Anybody can call. We have a central uh, number um, where anybody can call. Uh, we connect over the phone to, through our hotline to our uh, medical officers who will take some information and then connect you to our consultant on call. Uh, the whole process should take about 15 minutes. Uh, and then you can have a one-to-one -one discussion about your patient with the trained intensivists that we have uh, on our panel. Um, so that's our teleconsultation, uh, independent teleconsultation model. Uh, the second is around telerounding. And this is more focused on specific hospitals, which are specific partners and are interested in, um, might not have, might not feel like they have qualified intensivists or adequate expertise to take care of COVID patients on a, critical COVID patients on a regular basis. So for these, uh, we actually will call them up on daily time and do kind of remote grounding. Um, the novel aspect over here really ends up being that we can't actually predetermine what we're gonna use to talk to them, right? Um, and I'll talk about it a little bit more, but this does depend on connectivity on their part, but can be as simple as a phone connectivity. Um, and using this model, we have got about um, 1500 consultations on 300 plus patients over uh, the last 10 months or so across about uh, 15 facilities across uh, the country, uh, which include remote facilities. So uh, doing fairly well over there. Uh, what we are doing, uh, most of these calls, so we've actually recently started trying to collate our data and see what we're getting from this, right? And it's been interesting. Voice uh, technology con limitations often ends up being our biggest barrier and why most traditional telemedicine or tele-IC models won't work with voice being the predominant um, medium of uh, contact. So video with, um, because of connectivity often ends up being a problem and text actually is uh, an area where we have encouraged people to consult us and start conversations over WhatsApp groups. So independent WhatsApp groups uh, for specific hospitals um, where they can, uh, where we will not only get in touch with them, they can share information about the patient, including labs, um, x-rays, even brief videos or uh, video clips for what they're doing on the ventilator, what their settings are, how the patient is responding to kind of give you that virtual sort of presence. And uh, we've been able to do it across virtual th various things, whether it's Zoom, whether even if it's just voice, uh, phone, uh, WhatsApp, for each of these modalities. Uh, and the average consultation lasts a decent amount of time, about 15 minutes. Um, some have gone over an hour, and we've spent about 20,000 or so minutes on the phone, not counting text so far. Um, the volumes have been kind of trending and following what the local uh, waves have been. We're currently in our third wave. So actually for April, this is just the first eight or nine days, we've doubled, tripled that since then. Uh, so kind of exactly paralleling what our waves uh, are doing locally. Um, what we're seeing uh, has been a big range. And uh, actually, when somebody calls from Parker Hospital, we will, um, people have even called for asymptomatic patients, a small minority. 
but the vast majority are for severe and critically ill COVID patients. Um, so we, once you've built it, people will come is one thing we've noticed. So beyond COVID, they've also called for non-COVID patients in the facilities which where we've developed stronger collaborations and daily rounding. So it's been interesting over time, especially when there's a lull in our COVID numbers, uh, consultations were more for predominantly for non-COVID patients. Um, predominantly males, um, decent age range, about 56. And actually the significant portion of them don't have comorbidities from our data. Uh, <clears throat> as good proportion uh, of our consoles, the majority actually, over 900, almost 1,000 of them are for some sort of mechanical ventilation, invasive, non-invasive. And uh, uh, this, we, this is an area where I've been actually pleasantly surprised because when we started out, we went to the smaller hospital in uh, the rural areas, which had a brand new ICU, a 20-bed ICU, uh, six ventilators, and they taken care of, this was last July, about 100 patients so far. I asked them, well, how have you guys been doing? They were all severities, about 36 of them were severe, and 36 of our patients were severe, and 32 of them died. Um, well, that's unfortunate. Well, at least you guys had ventilators. When I asked them, they're like, well, that didn't make a difference. Turns out that only four of them ended up being on ventilators. The others uh, were never placed on a ventilator because of the perception that going to ventilator is equivalent to death. And there's no point. Uh, could you short, but uh, you are over time. Okay. So if you could please uh, move to your final slides and wrap up, please. Absolutely. So uh, surprisingly, a good number are using ventilated patients. And the success story here is actually Gilgit, which never had an IC before. And after this, after trainings and after consultations, has actually had a 60% discharge home rate and ventilated the first patient uh, and actually kept one patient on the ventilator for about 30 days. So the lessons learned from here really is that we have to reset our thinking about tele-ICUs. We have to be adaptable on our end. We have to think about low tech. We have to be cognizant of who our target audience is and cater to them in our adaptability. Um, and patient acuity might actually be different in most LMIC settings. The key, however, is the relationships. And this is where we have to be focusing on beyond just technology and uh, good outcomes are actually possible. So with that, I'm gonna end. Thank you guys very much. Uh, thank you, I've had a very interesting talk and I, I love the idea of resetting our concept of what tele-ICU can or can't be, that it doesn't have to be kind of this uber high-tech uh, video face-to-face uh, -face interaction. So uh, certainly very interesting thoughts for the future. So uh, again, thank you for that very interesting talk and uh, best of luck fighting COVID on the front lines out in, out in Pakistan with uh, 100 ventilators for 200 plus million people. You'd certainly have your work cut out for you. Best of luck to you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Uh, again, the, the session moves along. Uh, apologies, not being able to field all the questions. Uh, I am under a little bit of a timeline here. Um, so to conclude our session, again, circling back to issues of COVID-19 and um, how to best leverage our resources to address it. We're gonna conclude the session with uh, Dr. Bjorn Weiss. I hope I'm getting that close to correct. Uh, a consultant for anesthesiology and intensive care at uh, the Charité Hospital in Berlin, uh, who has been very much involved in uh, ESICM in initiatives, which I'm, I am as well. Um, and a very experienced practitioner when it comes to telemedicine, 
as he currently coordinates a tele-ICU at, at Charité Hospital in Berlin uh, with more than 30 remote locations in Germany. And uh, I'm sure he's going to tell us how the, the German approach to uh, supporting less resourced hospitals and COVID-19 are with, with technology. So on that note, uh, our final speaker of this session, Dr. Weiss, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for this very kind introduction, Nathan. And hello to everybody around the world. It's my pleasure to have the last talk in this session. And it's maybe challenging to reflect on the impact of telemedicine in the midst of the pandemic. And it's difficult to reflect because it's ongoing, but I try to make you familiar with the idea of using telemedicine and the approach that actually we are using here in Berlin. So before I start very quickly, my conflict of interest, the most important thing I have, no honorarium, no fees and no conflict of interest for today's uh, session. So I think one of the very, very important questions, which we already answered in the previous uh, talk, is what are the intensive care challenges we are facing during COVID-19? I can tell you at the very beginning, people told me it's all about ventilator and it's all about beds. So I remember the German government buying a lot of ventilators from the market to make sure we have a lot of intensive care beds available. And if you know the works, for example, of Hannah Wunsch and uh, uh, other people um, of any roads, you know that Germany has already a pretty high density of intensive care beds per 100,000 um, acute care beds. So what we learned pretty quickly that it's not about the ventilator, but it's more about people who run the ventilator. It's about nurses, it's about allied healthcare professions, and it's about all the people that actually, and all the, the resources you need to run an intensive care unit uh, human-wise. And I would go a step farther. It's not only um, people, because you cannot use anybody but you need to have different qualifications and you need to have very highly qualified people. You cannot easily make a dermatologist or radiologist go to an intensive care unit and treat patients there, but you need some kind of training. And uh, people started to build wonderful programs like uh, the SPACE program, for example, which you probably know, U-SPACE, where we actually, where actually ESICM um, yeah, tried to educate uh, people. And... Um, to make them part of a big intensive care team. But this is one of the core challenges. And the second core challenge we had here in Germany is something that we realized at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. We realized that one of the challenges would be the utilization of a network in a given area. And I would like to quote this viewpoint because I think it's wonderful and it uh, cannot be... Um, mentioned enough, it's from Giacomo Graselli, Antonio Pizenti, and Maurizio Cecconi, uh, has been published at the very beginning of the pandemic, and they were giving us an insight, a very honest insight into the situation in Lombardia, Italy, in March last year. And uh, for me, the bottom line was what really helped them to cope with the pandemic was actually their network, their ARDS network in the region and the strong connections between the hospitals. So if we go to the situation in Germany, I already told you there are a lot of intensive care beds here in Germany and there is a lot of intensive uh, care cases here. So we do over 2 million cases per year. I 
don't go through the complete table with you, but it's the last column from the right where you see the ICU cases and the last one where you see the ventilated cases, nearly 500,000 per year. And if you look at the type of hospital where these people or these patients are actually treated, then you see that more than two-thirds or about two-thirds of the patients are actually treated in small and medium-sized hospitals. And this is the normal situation. This is not the pandemic, but it's the normal situation. So in during COVID, we would probably need to utilize the same capacities in the same hospitals. But of course, you need a special qualification. You need patients who are able to ventilate, to take care of these extremely critically ill patients, a lot of sepsis, a lot of ARDS, proning, et cetera, adjunct therapies. And I like this article from the Nafri Trust where it says, and again, this was before the pandemic in 2018, where they said you, you need to shift a little bit from this all or nothing understanding of the provision of care more to a modular concept. And there need to be large hospitals that actually support small and medium-sized hospitals. The situation in Germany is very, very easy and especially in Berlin and Brandenburg. We have a high density of hospitals. This is a picture from the newspaper before the pandemic, of course. We have a high density of people also. And therefore, we assumed that we would have a very high case number here, very easy. And we had this ARDS ECMO network existing since more than 30 years. Our clinic and Professor Spies and Professor Weber-Kastens run this ARDS ECMO network, which has been added with several other um, internal medicine clinics now. And uh, we also had something available, the ERIC Telemedicine Network, that came out of a, a research uh, a project that was just finished by the time COVID emerged. So um, let's focus on that. What is it? So to make it extremely short and extremely easy, ERIC is something like a um, proposal for a new form of intensive care in Germany, taking into account the demographic structure of the population. We have a lot of problems with PICS, and I, I listened partly to this wonderful PICS session at this Congress this morning, and I think post-intensive care unit and long-term survival problems are a big thing here in Germany. So we wanted to do acute care prevention by evidence-based medicine implementation via virtual care, and we wanted to give the patients a perspective after their discharge and did post-acute care. And how did we do the first one? I will not so much concentrate on the latter one, but on the first one. We actually tried to find out what is evidence-based in medicine. And in Germany, there is something that we call quality indicators of intensive care medicine. And we designed structured rounds around these quality indicators. So quality indicators in intensive care medicine are actually the German guidelines or what is available in guidelines, for example, surviving sepsis campaign, German sepsis guidelines, translated into quality indicators and then translated into key performances that you can actually assess in a medical round. And we did this by using a dedicated telemedicine system, a technological system uh, that we actually uh, bought uh, for the research project in the context of an EU tender. Um, so we made a big catalog of what we would require of all the requirements and then we bought the product that would fit it and there is a software and a hardware component to this for these rounds so now 
Let's take a very quick look on how this looks like. You see, this is a hub. This is a workstation and a hub. Here's one of our physicians. He is driving a robot. The robot is here in the remote side of the hospital. You see the physician and the nurse standing here, the patient, in this case, one of our students uh, at the spoke side, actually. And you see how great this audio video communication is you can actually see all the details you can look at the ventilators you can look at the setting and you can interact very nicely from both sides and we had this technology available and we wanted to use this technology so if you're interested in the study which i cannot uh yeah, I explain you in detail. You can you can look at the at the trials paper in BMJ Open. It has been published. It's a, a step wedge cluster randomized control trial, and the trial status at the beginning of the pandemics was nearly finished. So we had one hundred percent patient recruitment. We did more than ten thousand consultations, and we had eleven ICUs connected to the healthcare system. So what we, did we do in the beginning of the pandemics, we tried to make a concept, it's called the safe Berlin at COVID concept, and we made a containment strategy for the whole city of Berlin. We defined hub hospitals, we defined a transportation system and a telemedical system as an add-on that we expanded to all COVID ICUs. So it needs a legal, technical and logistic framework that is quite a lot of work. But let me show you this map because I think it's really interesting for you to see that. Um, the telemedical hub is in the upper red dot and the three red dots represent our level one hospital, which is the University of Berlin. It's the Charité University Hospitals. We have three campuses. The yellow dots are actually what we defined as level two hospitals, which are hospitals that have experience in the treatment of sepsis, septic shock, and uh, ARDS patients. And a very important feature, all of these hospitals are directly linked via the telemedical support to our level one hospital and the level three hospitals are not level three in terms of that they don't that they cannot provide the care but we decided to have hospitals in the city that would take care for non-covid patients and do like the regular care for patients and would be left out in the and the and the um care of covid patients so what did we do? We did do a lot of teleconsults, and that's pretty similar to my previous speaker. We did more than 3,500 consults already in the first wave of COVID, which was here from March to the beginning of uh, June. Um, then we did like these normal, very low great um, yeah, uh, consultations during the summer, and then we started again. And overall, we within one year had uh, far more than 10,000 patient contacts here. So we expand the system. We expand the system as a grand round peer-to-peer -peer system to other German cities. It's called the Future Project with the Robert Koch Institute. And we even do it internationally now. We started with our first project and our first remote site in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And we're now expanding, or we're now aiming to expand uh, the system to South Africa, because we really, really have the feeling that this is something really good to implement evidence-based medicine. It's not only me, but it's a very big team, and uh, it actually has a very good opportunity to add something to your multi-professional team you have, and not only the team, but also to link teams' ideas and to generate evidence. As I said, it's not only me, it's a lot of people and to keep within the time frame, I wanna conclude and uh, 
show you the last picture of the wonderful Eric team. I'm very thankful and very blessed that I got the opportunity to work in this kind of virtual care. And I thank you for your attention. Bjorn, thank, thank you. Uh, great talk. And you've clearly done some great things in Berlin under crazy circumstances. Uh, a question that I think has come up in a couple of sessions regarding telemedicine in particular is how do you ensure privacy is protected? Uh, under certain, you know, under circumstances like this, I think there's a worry with you know, the digital age that information is leaky and has consequences. Absolutely, and we have the EU GDPR here in Germany, which is uh, something that is known to be very, very, um, yeah, clear about the rules. So we decided, therefore, to do this kind of EU tender and to actually buy a commercial system that mm. has all these things involved. And of course, there is something like a standard operating procedure, for example, for the camera. Uh, patients' relatives are asked to whether or not they want to participate in the round, but the willingness to do so is very high. So the audio-video communication actually is a very, very easy peer-to-peer, end-to-end encrypted uh, um, uh, video call. And the documentation system we use is a safe on-premise platform here that meets all the data protection requirements. But I think and this is why I just briefly mentioned there needs to be a legal framework around it, at least in Europe, very clearly, because if you will be very unhappy if you don't take care of these aspects. Absolutely. Another question that's come up in other sessions, too, is what, what do you see about the future of uh, translation software being built in? Because clearly, right, as we try to expand telemedicine into um, more and more remote places, issues of language are going to be extremely important. So how do you see uh, translation software or real-time translations being incorporated into your model? That is a very, very interesting and, uh, question. And it's from a medical, medical legal perspective, it's an important question because I don't know how perfect these softwares are. So you have to agree on using these kinds. We're doing telemedicine in Tashkent, uh, three times a week. And we have the, the wonderful opportunity of having fluent English speaking, uh, people around us helping us. But I think it would be an asset to use these kind of softwares and to, ha to have these in use because then you could really, you know, spread evidence even further. And I think in COVID, at the beginning, we had so many reports about potential treatments, about potential ideas, sometimes really bad ideas, sometimes really good ideas. And uh, the thing is, how do you get these ideas to the patient's bedside where it's really needed? And it's not only the big university centers, but it's like at least two thirds in Germany, but elsewhere, elsewhere maybe more. It's small hospitals and we need to make sure the information gets where it's most needed, namely at the bedside of the patient. So, and translation is for sure a part of this, but I have to say, we're not using that at the moment. Absolutely, I don't think, I don't think any of us are, but I. I suspect that's going to be an element into the future, future. As, we, as we start to increase our, our reach. It's going to be a necessity. Oh, well, great talk. Thank you for, a, again, a great closing, closing talk on our, on our session and um, you know, some ideas for the future, how we can uh, better coordinate and uh, further expand our reach in, a, in, a, in an evidence-based and scientific manner. So, uh, Jordan, thank you so much for, uh, for a great final talk to our session. Welcome. So for my for my audience, uh, 
Thank you so much for participating. Um, I apologize, I was only able to get to a small handful of your questions. You all were engaged, you were interested, you asked some thought-provoking questions. Um, I, I just wish we had had time to, to answer them all. I, I think we had a great session. I certainly learned a lot. I, I think the future is very, very interesting. Our methodologies and our approaches to, to sepsis and COVID-19, I think are, are going to change. Borders are going to melt. Um, innovation, I think, is going to drive how we address uh, the collection of data, how we identify septic patients, how we treat them, and hopefully uh, only for the better and better. So I think the future is, at the very least, going to be interesting. I think here I will close this session. Again, thank you so much to all of our fantastic speakers um, and to our participants. I, I heard from at least four or five continents out there. So thank you for your participation, whatever time zone you may be in. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the Congress. Um, thank you so much to the sponsors of this Congress. This would not happen without you, particularly not for free. Uh, for our participants who only caught part of the session or may catch it down the road, the sessions will be posted on a weekly basis on both uh, Apple Podcasts and the World Sepsis Day YouTube channel. Uh, thank you, my uh, tech support people, for those lovely links. Uh, starting on April 27th, they'll be released weekly, so please uh, catch up and uh, get up to speed on those. And please, 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 uh, everyone, Please uh, sign the World Sepsis Declaration if you haven't already. Uh, this gets you in touch with our movement. It gets keeps you up to date and more importantly, kind of helps build our healthcare and layperson workforce for combating this uh, global scourge. So please uh, sign on and, and join us. On that note, I will sign off and end the session. Thank you to everyone. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everyone who helped making World Sepsis Congress possible, especially all speakers, moderators, and our sponsors. Session 11 will be released in a couple of minutes, and Session 12 and 13 are following on June 8th. See you next week.